Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 149 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is journalist John Ronson, author of such books as The Psychopath Test and Them, Adventures with Extremists. He's also created many television documentaries, including Secret Rulers of the World, and two of his books, The Men Who Stare at Goats and Frank, have been adapted into feature films. His new book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, explores the lives of ordinary people who accidentally become infamous online. And now, here's our interview with John Ronson. All right, so we're here with John Ronson. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. Okay, and so your new book is called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. So just tell us a bit about what that's about. Uh, okay. I, you know, o- o- over the years, over like my 20 years of writing, it's, I, I often write about how organizations for their own benefit tend to turn human beings into one-dimensional kind of demons or, or define people by that their outermost aspects. So anyway, what I started to notice was that we started doing this kind of stuff on social media. Somebody would make a joke that landed badly, and then uh, the, the Twitter approval machine would take over and just ruin somebody's life in, in, a, in a flash of an eye, and then just everyone would just happily carry on with their day. Right. And so you mentioned that these kind of internet witch hunts harken back to an earlier era uh, in public shaming. Why don't you talk about like what sort of historical research did you do and what did you find out about the history of public shaming? Sure. Well, I spent time up at the Massachusetts Archives and the Massachusetts Historical Society looking through the very earliest court documents in American history that have been preserved on microfilm. I, I was incredibly excited about doing this. Um, and then I sat down at a microfilm reader. And it turns out for, for the first hundred years in America, as far as I can tell, all that happened was that people called Nathaniel purchased land near rivers. Um, and I tell you what, and they certainly hadn't discovered the paragraph break. Nor, from what I could tell, the letter S. So it, it was, it became a, a, quickly became a kind of frustrating experience. Um, and then suddenly I started to find these shamings. And well, the very first one I found was a woman called Abigail Gilpin. Um, this was in, I think, 1742. And her husband at sea, she had been found in bed with a man called John Russell. And both she and John Russell were going to be whipped uh, 40 times each at the public whipping post. And she was appealing. Um, her sentence, but she wasn't appealing the whipping. She was begging the judge to let her have the the punishment at dawn before the people in the village woke up. Um, that was the thing she seemed to be most afraid of, the public gaze. So that was the first thing I found. Uh, then I found a whole bunch of like great thinkers from the time all saying the same thing, which is like, you know, we have, we've got to stop public punishments. It's, it's crazy. People lose their senses in a crowd and the punishment massively um, is massively disproportionate to the crime. And I mean, they didn't use these words, but this is what they were saying was that it's, it's hugely psychologically damaging to, you know, some kid 
who's been arrested for petty larceny, you know, you, you punish them in public and it can ruin them. So here we are happily um, bringing back on social media something that was considered grotesque by the great thinkers of the 18th century. Huh, and so when you're talking about the, the great thinkers, are those people whose names we would recognize still today? Uh, there was Benjamin Rush, who was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, he wrote a paper that said, you know, why do people not realize that ignominy is, is a worse punishment than death? Um, you know, maybe people don't realize, you know, the horrors of ignominy uh, because the human brain seldom arrives at, um, at reason till it's reached the extremity of error. So that's what Benjamin Rush wrote at the time. Um, then I found um, various uh, ministers, pulp, you know, big church leaders, you know, just begging people to be less exuberant at executions. Wow. Well, well, let's talk a bit more about the, the modern phenomenon of public shaming. So w w let's just give an example of the kind of thing you're talking about. Could you tell us about Lindsay Stone? Yeah, Lindsay. Uh, God, it took me a long time to convince Lindsay to talk to me. But, you know, I think she's one of the... Um, She's one of the moral hearts of the book, so because she's such a nice woman. Um, it's funny, you know, while we're talking at this podcast, um, I've got Twitter up, um, and I've got 111 new notifications from the past, <laughs> like, two minutes. Um, but I'm not worried, because I know what it is. And, and this is relevant, by the way, but also slightly odd. Um, I know what it is. Um, a few hours ago, uh, Louis from um, One Direction, was passing through uh, LAX airport holding one of my books in his hand, uh, The Psychopath Test. And so I'm getting this kind of mass love from, um, from One Direction fans. It's gone up to 116 new notifications. <laughs> and it's a great feeling, you know, that suddenly like hundreds and hundreds of people are, are suddenly like, you know, these sweet, I mean, I happen to be a One Direction fan, so I'm especially pleased. Um, but all these sweet teenage kids have like found me to just tell me how great I am. And it's up to 126 new notifications. Um, but imagine the opposite of that. And that's something that happened to Lindsay Stone. So she was a uh, care worker for adults with learning difficulties um, in, in uh, Plymouth, Massachusetts. Um, the company loved her. The people who she worked with loved her. One day she was taking um, the people in her care on a trip to Washington, D.C., and she did all the regular things, the Holocaust Museum and, you know, the Lincoln Memorial. And they ended up in Arlington at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Now, Lindsay had a running joke with her friend Jamie, which was that they would pose in front of signs and do the opposite to what's written on the sign, a kind of silly, douchey joke that you do when you're in your early 20s. So she'd smoke in front of a non-smoking sign, or she'd um, loiter in front of a no-loitering sign. Anyway, so uh, one day when she was at Arlington, she saw a sign that said, keep off the grass. And she thought, oh, maybe I should stand on the grass. And they've got, no, I might get into trouble. So then she saw another sign that said, silence and respect. So as she said to me when she finally did agree to meet me, inspiration struck. So she posed in front of the sign, pretending to shout and flip the finger. And a friend posted it on Facebook, and then kind of nothing happened until a month later. And suddenly, 
kind of what's happening to me right now with all these lovely One Direction fans. The evil inverse happened to her that pro-military people across America suddenly, you know, this photograph went viral and she became the epitome of, you know, some privileged, stupid feminist <laughs> um, who was disrespecting the military and disrespecting soldiers who died in foreign wars and she had to be taught a lesson. So in the space of a few hours, she was fired. Her mental health was was uh, mangled up uh, because she was completely ill-equipped to cope with it. She went home and read every single tweet, every single Facebook message. Every one of them just snaked its way inside of her. And by the end of the night, she just felt, she felt completely without worth. And she fell into depression and didn't leave home for a year and a half. Wow. Yeah. And so you mentioned that she got fired. And that's a common theme with these various people in your book. Many of them lost their jobs as a result of some stupid joke or something that they posted on the internet. And I just wonder, what are the implications of this for free speech in this country if you have to worry about, you know, who's going to keep saying controversial things if your employer is going to fire you every time somebody takes offense at something that you say on the internet? Right. And, you know, it's, it's fear that they'll get you next. I mean, that's why the employers are hanging you out to dry. You know, I'm sure Lindsay's employers and the other people I write about in my book, I'm sure that they understood, you know, that the joke had been misconstrued. But it's the terror of like, will this happen to me next? Um, and actually, a side story, uh, a woman called Helen Lewis, who's a journalist with the New Statesman in London, reviewed my book. And she was talking about when Justine Sacco was being shamed, uh, the woman who wrote, tweeted, uh, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. And then she got on a plane and turned off her phone. And while the internet was tearing her apart, Helen Lewis tweeted, you know, I'm not sure that that joke was intended to be racist. And she wrote in the review of my book, straight away, you know, a whole bunch of people just tweeted her, well, you're just a privileged bitch too. And so to her shame, she said, she shut up. And this is the thing. It's like the, when the flame, you know, when, when the social media outrage flame burns, it burns really hot and people get scared. Um, this is why, one of the reasons why I felt it was so important to write this book, because I wanted people to feel the fear of what it feels like to be Lindsay Stone or Justine Sacco. And I think I'm, I accomplished that in the book. It's a, tense experience reading this book hmm. um and yeah i've noticed a couple of little changes though since last couple of weeks so um that guy who was fired for the course shooting avatar um do you, do you know this one like a couple of days ago no i think i must have missed that one uh, okay some guy was fired um, some of the listeners will know what i'm talking about um it was some kind of sports thing <laughs> Sorry to be so shit. Um, and he tweeted an avatar of a, of a gun and a horse that he got fired. And anyway, lots of the criticism wasn't against him, but against his company for hanging him out to dry and firing him so quickly. And then when Trevor Noah on The Daily Show, um, you know, suddenly got defined by five tweets that he wrote five years ago, uh, Comedy Central stood by him and said, kind of in an echo of what I said when I was on The Daily Show a couple of days earlier, uh, you can't define, it's not correct and it's not humane to define somebody by 
some bad phraseology or a couple of bad jokes from a few years ago. And so Comedy Central stood by him. So maybe there's a little change going on. And maybe it's partly because of my book, um, because of Monica Lewinsky's TED Talk and stuff like that. Well, yeah, I mean, that's interesting because you just interviewed Monica Lewinsky, right? You want to tell us about that experience? Yeah. I mean, I tried to get her for the book, but she didn't want to talk to me. Um, she's quite, you know, I think, well, she's kind of post-traumatic. Um, I think people don't realize until it happens to them just how horrific it is. I mean, it's frightening. Um, it's depressing. It gives you anxiety and insomnia. It, it change, you know, it changes you. It, it mangles up your mental health. Whether you feel you've done something wrong or not, um, it'll do that to you. Because if you, even if you feel you've been misconstrued, I mean, the the incredible uh, frustration of hundreds of thousands of people deliberately misconstruing you is just as agonizing as you know, if you think, oh my God, I really have done something wrong. Um, anyway, so I met Monica Lewinsky and I say that because she wanted to interview me, but every time I tried to ask her questions, she deflected and, and I thought that was kind of telling and interesting. Um, but I think she's great. And there was a lovely thing she said in her TED talk. Um, she said, people forget that I am dimensional and there was a time when I wasn't broken. And I really like the word dimension. It's a really American word, but I, I understand completely what she means. That you know, I've been writing journalism for twenty years, and the older I get, and the more you know, bad things that happen to me, the sort of general bad things that happen in life as you get older, the more you just understand. You know, where people are dimensional, and and this terrible proclivity we have on social media and in the mainstream media to just define somebody by like the worst thing they ever said, or define somebody by like the one bad thing that they did, is it's not the world we want to live in. I mean, do you think that I'm, I've seen that Monica Lewinsky has described herself as sort of the patient zero of uh, the internet, um, you know, hate machine, whatever? But it seems to me that. Like she would have been a household name even without the internet, right? Because the national media would have covered that story, whereas they wouldn't have. The national media wouldn't have covered uh, Lindsey Stone, right? That that's a totally dependent on social media. Yeah. Uh, I mean, do you think that there's, like, to what extent do you think that the Monica Lewinsky story is a story about the internet, and to what extent is it just a story about the media? Uh, well, I take Monica Lewinsky's word for it when when she says that you know her story was the first story to ever um, gain you know a forest fire through the internet um so i mean that's, that's what she says so i you know I'm, I'm taking her word for that uh but it's true there's a weird symbiosis between social media and the mainstream media in modern day shamings like at first people ignored twitter it's like okay you know these, these this twitter's in competition to us um you know we'll, we'll you know if we ignore it it will go away so that's what that's that's how the mainstream media responded first towards Twitter. And then Twitter became like more powerful than the mainstream media. So like if the Daily Mail, you know, if a, if a columnist on the Daily Mail would tweet something racist or homophobic, um, social justice people like me on social media could get them. And suddenly the Daily Mail would find that uh, it's having its advertising withdrawn because of pressure on social media. So then what happened? was that 
the mainstream media began to kind of embrace social media and think, oh, we can't ignore this anymore, and kind of began to suck up to social media and, you know, write articles about the 100 best tweeters and so on. But then what happened, which I think is really interesting, is that the mainstream media became scared of social media. So when Justine Sacco was torn apart on the plane as she slept for, a, for what was effectively a liberal joke that was, you know, very badly worded and misconstrued as being racist, um, almost no mainstream journalists defended her. Um, I quote one guy who tried to defend her from Variety magazine, and he was like saying, disgusting and repugnant as her joke was, there must be some mitigating circumstances if her joke wasn't intended to be racist. You know, horrendous as her words were. <laughs> so this guy was basically saying, please don't hurt me. Um, you know, we're, you know, journalists are supposed to be fearless and stand up to injustice and stand and speak truth to power and stand up to abusive behavior. But the power that we wield on social media when the flame is burning at its hottest is so frightening that people don't want to stand up to it. I, I mean, you, you say that, yeah, that the social media does sometimes target people who should be targeted and sometimes it targets people who really don't deserve to be targeted. What, would you, what do you think is roughly the ratio of, like how many innocent victims are there for each legitimate target? I mean, it's, it's really gray, right? Because look at somebody like Britt McHenry the other day. Um, so this was the ESPN woman who, do you remember, she, her car was towed away. So yeah, she, she was rude to the woman at the car lot, basically. Yeah, she basically said to the woman at the car lot, I'm, I'm better looking than you. My teeth are better than you. I'm on television. <laughs> I'm on television. And you just work in a car pound. So she was shamed. So... What happened really quickly, I think, was that the kind of power balance shifted. Like, you know, shamings only work when it's perceived to be punching up. Shamings only work when we can get people who are perceived to have misused their privilege. Um, so that's certainly what happened with Britt McHenry. Uh, you know, she acted like a sort of entitled, ridiculous, good-looking person um, on television. And so we got her. So at the very beginning, that was like an appropriate shaming. But then when you read the stuff, um, how, how graphic am I allowed to be in my language on this podcast? Uh, you can be as graphic as you want. Okay. I mean, these aren't words that I would use, but this is what people were saying. So, you know, within minutes of the shaving of Brick McHenry starting, people were saying to her, you know, I'm going to cut out your uterus, you cunt. You know, you fucking cunt. I'm going to rape you and murder you. So straight away, you know, those of us on social media or the social media you know, mutual approval machine starts punishing Britt McHenry in a in an echo of her original transgression. So that so there's an example of a appropriate shaming very quickly turning into an inappropriate shaming. Um, so that's why it's hard to answer the ratio question because I think a really interesting thing about this story is is about the kind of uh, the kind of lightning speed of the shifts of power. I think this is what my book is about more than anything, really. Um, social media gives a voice to voiceless people. But then what happens is that those of us on social media become way more powerful than we like to think of ourselves as being. Because in our, in our internal morality, we like to think of ourselves 
as a as a powerless social justice person punching up um you know punching up and getting people who misuse their privilege but the power balance shifts so quickly we become like way more powerful than the person we're kicking as they're on the ground I mean, so how should people do? I mean, so the problem is then you're trying to punch up, but you basically can't control how hard you're punching, and you might just punch the person so hard you kill them, right? Yeah, and you know, people people die. I I, I, I was really pissed. I got like most of the people who've reviewed this book have reviewed it really really well, but one guy who's the former editor of Gawker uh, wrote one of the reviews in the New York Times and basically said, "Ah, oh, you know, it's fine. You know, the men in Ronson's book." You know, they're, they're fine. You know, it's just words. They're fine. Uh, you know, I went around meeting these people and it was, you know, I did what nobody else had done, which is I've sat in these people's homes and talked to them. And, you know, suicidal thoughts, anxiety, depression, insomnia, um, you know, deep psychological trauma. You know, they're not just fine. It just benefits some people to imagine that they're fine. And there's one story in my book about a pop science writer who used to write for Wired, in fact, called Joan Alera, um, who transgressed, and he was given the opportunity to publicly apologize. Um, but his public apology was being um, hosted by a foundation called the Knight Foundation, and it was streamed live. So it was live streamed, and there was a giant Twitter feed right next. He didn't realize this when he gave the talk. I didn't realize till he turned up that they directed this giant screen Twitter feed right next to his head. So, you know, he was disgraced and fired and he hadn't earned a penny in like 10 months. And this was his opportunity to, to apologize and explain himself and ask for a second chance. And so while he was apologizing in real time, people were tweeting and he could read every single one of these tweets as he was apologizing. Joan Alera is boring us into forgiving him. Joan Alera has not proven he is capable of feeling shame. Joan Alera is just a frigging sociopath. So imagine if that was happening like in a real court. Um, and, you know, it was a real court in a way because um, those of us on social media were determining the severity of Joan Alera's sentence at that point. But imagine how, like a murderer stands up in the dock in a real court and the jury all yell out, you know, bored, you know, as he's trying to explain himself, sociopath, you know, that's what we've decided to do with our power. I mean, going back to Monica Lewinsky for a second, I mean, my, my understanding is that she was basically like lived with her parents and, you know, was kind of a, a shut in um, subsequent to, to that whole thing, just because it was so unbearable to go out. But you know, you contrast that to, to Bill Clinton, who, you know, is a celebrity and has a, a foundation and all this stuff. Uh, yeah. What do you make of how differently the two of them either were treated and or reacted to that mm. one event? Well, I mean, women, in, in all shamings, women have it like way worse than men. Um, it's no coincidence that my book is filled with women. Um, Joan Allaire is one of the only men I write about in the book. Um, there's this huge amount of misogyny around at the moment and Monica Lewinsky fell victim to it um and this is what I said to her when I when I tried to get her to talk to me for the book I said I want to understand you know why you fared so much worse than than Bill Clinton you know why is there so much misogyny and why did you fall victim to it um and yeah this vast amount of misogyny going on and um, why um I, I you know I don't know I've got guesses but um but I don't know. 
Well, I, I mean, you contrast that with this guy, Max Mosley, who was also involved in a, a consensual sex, quote unquote, scandal. But you say that nobody cared about that one. Exactly. Um, nobody cared. Um, I went up to Kennebunk in Maine to investigate this, um, this exposed prostitution ring. The local Zumba teacher had been having sex. Everybody got really excited because they thought there'd be like Bushes on the list uh, of clients um, because George Bush Sr. had his uh, seaside home nearby. But there weren't. But there were, you know, high school teachers and a local church minister who I got talking to. Um, there were 69 people named on the list of this, uh, on the client list of this Zumba prostitution ring. Um, 68 of the people got like, I mean, you know, some of them got fired and some of them lost their wives. Um, but there was no public shaming. Like, nobody was mocked in town or really on the internet either. Um, the only one of the 69 clients that was mocked in town was the one woman on the list. Hmm. I mean, are we sort of stuck with that? Or do you think, I mean, it seems like sexual shame is diminishing, you know, that just because I think because all these celebrities have their phones hacked, and there's like sex tapes by everyone out everywhere. I yeah, mean, I'm poor. I'm, I'm like the sort of sex positive porn people. One of the things I do in my book is go to this sadomasochistic uh, sex show run by this woman called, uh, it's a porn shoot run by this woman called Princess Donna. And um, yeah, I think that's part of the reason, you know, there's this kind of sterling work by people like Princess Donna to demystify and destigmatize strange sex on the internet. Um, and yeah, it's like sex scandals, consensual sex scandals now are way less shameworthy for, for men and for women. Um, I mean, especially for men, but I think for women too, than the most shameworthy behavior these days, which is a misuse of privilege. Now, a misuse of privilege is a better thing to be upset about than a consensual sex scandal, of course. But the problem is that this word, I'm really suspicious of people who bandy around the word privilege at the moment because it's used to, as like a free pass to shame whoever you want to shame. Lindsay Stone um, was accused of misusing her privilege, her privilege being the privilege of living free in a country where where people die to protect her freedoms. Uh, Justine Sacco was accused of misusing her privilege. Um, yeah, she was an unknown PR woman with 170 Twitter followers. Uh, Jonah Lehrer was accused of misusing her privilege, and he was privileged, um, and he was appropriately disgraced and fired as a result of misusing his privilege. But then, when he was like desperately attempting to apologize 10 months later, when he was you know, effectively ruined, I mean, things are slightly different with him now because he does have a, a book deal. Um, it was still like, you know, we're going to kick this man you know, because of his misuse of privilege. Uh, you know, every shaming. Um, I would, I would defy anybody to find a widespread shaming that's happening these days when the shaming isn't justified by uh, the phrase misuse of privilege. Um, but, and, and the problem, of course, is that it's becoming a devalued term, like pretty much everybody's accused these days of misusing their privilege. Well, I mean, like, there's this amazing part in the book where you talk about, I'd, I'd never heard of this, how General Motors hired prostitutes to try to blackmail Ralph Nader. Yeah, and... that's, yeah. I know, it's hilarious. They, would, uh, they followed her. I mean, this is like, it's because, you know, the, the, the power of shaming. 
So General Motors wanted to publicly shame Ralph Nader because he was uh, he was canvassing for better car safety, like safety belts in cars. So they hired sex workers to follow him into supermarkets to try and seduce him. And it didn't work with Ralph Nader. He kind of noticed straight away what was going on because suddenly all these really um, beautiful you know, women were coming up to him at like the um, the fruit counter, uh, asking him to to do, you know, do you want to come back to my house to talk about um, global politics? So he kind of <laughs> sniffed a, you know, smelt a rat right away. Um, but yeah, the power of shaming, you see, it's like you know we are repeating. You know, we're supposed to be the sort of voiceless people coming up with a with a more um, um, level playing field society but we're utilizing you know the same destructive nefarious tools that all the people used in the old days the people you know that were trying to better but but, i mean what i was going to say is that in a world where this kind of thing is happening isn't isn't should the people who are doing this kind of thing be the ones that we target on twitter not like lindsey stone or yeah um yeah you know there was a beautiful line in one of the reviews of my book the other day which i might use in the paperback if they'll let, let me. I, I kind of head this way in the book anyway, but the line I loved was, you know, Lindsay Stone and Justine Sacco, you know, this is not social justice. What it is, is a cathartic alternative to social justice. Social, social justice is the guy who filmed the police officers arresting the guy whose spine is broken in the back of the truck, and as a result... Um, six cops, you know, have been arrested. That's social justice. Ruining somebody, um, you know, aggressively ruining somebody for a liberal joke that comes out badly is not social justice. I mean, to what extent do you think that the instantaneous nature of Twitter is is part of the problem here? That, you know, like if everyone had to post a tweet and then wait an hour before it actually went live, both, yeah. both the victims and the um, yeah. you know, the people targeting them. Yeah, although personally, it's I, you know, the behavior change I, I would hope would happen as a result of this book isn't the people, you know, I think if you've got a liberal joke that might get misconstrued, don't be afraid to tweet it because some, you know, radical bully might decide to use you as a sort of blank canvas for them to like stamp their ideology onto. Um, you know, I think the people who need to think twice are the people who are willing to just, you know, leap in and, and you know, ruin somebody um, for nothing. Those are the people who need to think twice. I mean, what other? You've mentioned a couple of like, comments you've gotten about the book. Are there other reviews or reactions to the book that you think are noteworthy? Um, there's, there was a bit of. I mean, you know, most of the reviews have been really great. The the one thing that I found kind of frustrating and annoying was a small number of people who decided, because they didn't like kind of my message. And my message is basically, the message of the book is just reminding people that, um, you know, collateral damage is not appropriate because human beings are human beings. Um, and we need to treat people with compassion and empathy. I mean, this is what the book's about. In, in a kind of visceral way as opposed to an academic way. Um, anyway, a few people didn't like that, and, and a couple of people decided to attack the book by, by saying that I'm not cognizant of gender differences in the book. Like, I'm not cognizant of the fact that women get it worse than men. But I think that's a kind of deliberate 
um, that's a deliberate kind of misrepresentation of the book because I think the book is full of stuff about gender differences. It's kind of what the book's all about in a way. So that kind of bugged me. Um, but then I've had lots and lots of great reviews that like it, so I'm not too bugged. I mean, sort of the central premise of the book, to my mind, is that the punishment should fit the crime, that people's suffering should be proportional to their offense for what they do online. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it makes me sometimes think that there's maybe there's two types of people in the world. Maybe there's uh, those people who value humanity over ideology and those people who value ideology over humanity. And, and maybe they're both valid ways of seeing the world, but, but I value humanity over ideology. And when I you know, look at Justine Sacco, I look at a kind of wronged person um, whose life was kind of upended in a really dramatic way by, by nice people like us. Um, one thing that really interested me in the book was that in, in response to this book was a few people said, oh, you know, John Ronson's so right to have written this book. Um, but why did he have to be sympathetic towards Justine Sacco? And it's like, don't tell me I can write about this wronged person, but I'm not allowed to write about that wronged person, you know? Right, right. I mean, if someone is one of these people, in, in, there isn't a similar situation to people in this book where they find themselves the subject of one of these campaigns should they go quiet or should they try to apologize or like what what's the yeah they response? have to go quiet and it won't yeah i mean if, if you've really done something that you think is wrong and, and wants an apology apologize and then you have to go silent you know because anything you say after that will just be used as more evidence for the prosecution which is so like the opposite of justice um, but unfortunately, that's the case. You know, as human beings, we want to communicate with our fellow humans. Um, but when the flame is burning hot in your direction, it's a pointless thing to do uh, to try and communicate. Um, you know, it's it is kind of sad that social media gives a voice to voiceless people, and the best way to survive it sometimes is to just go back to to being voiceless. I mean, a line from the book that really struck me is you said that we've created a world where the smartest way to survive is to be bland. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in, and that's so different to how it started. Um, in the old days, what was so great was that it was a place for people to kind of confess hitherto shameful secrets and other people would be kind of empathetic. They'd say, oh, my God, I'm exactly the same. Um, it reminds me of a, of a little girl I know who, who um, used to have these intrusive thoughts, you know, like, oh, my God, I could yell something racist at that person. I must be a terrible person. I could throw that baby out of the window. And, and these thoughts would haunt her. And she went to see a psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist said, it's completely normal. Everybody has these thoughts. They pop into your head, and then they pop out again, and it's just a thing, and it's fine. And that cured her. You know, the understanding that she was she wasn't kind of anomaly. She wasn't a freak was what saved her. And that's what social media was like in the early days. People would say these sort of shameful things, admit them. And other people would say, don't be ashamed. I'm exactly the same. Um, and now people are kind of hunting around like the Stasi, like these German secret police, 
to look for the people's shameful secrets and then define them by it. Say, aha, aha, this tweet is a clue to that person's evil. So the opposite has happened. Um, and it's such a shame because it was so wonderful when it started. Do you think I'm being too rose-tinted? I mean, this is certainly how I remember the early days of Twitter. To be honest, I wasn't on Twitter in the early days of Twitter because I, I just didn't like the 140-character limit. It drove me crazy. So right. Right. I'm, still, I'm, I'm still not huge on Twitter, to be honest with you, just because of it's so hard to express uh, nuance. And I think that's, why, that, that's what creates a lot of these problems is that people, you know, like, like, like just trying to apologize on Twitter you can't express something that, that, that needs to be crafted that carefully and explain that much in 140 yes. characters. Yeah, well, and I'm sure it's, 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 it's ruined some people's lives. What you were just saying, though, about, the, about how people were so uh, completely honest in the early days of Twitter was reminding me, though, of the, that group you went to where everyone is just encouraged to just be as bluntly honest as they can possibly be yeah this was this it was called radical honesty and uh my favorite story of, of radical honesty is actually i mean i loved the course that i went on and it was kind of crazy um but my friend starley kine went on it just before me and at the beginning at the first thing you do when you start the course is you have to go around the circle telling the group something that you've never told anybody before, like something you don't want anybody to know about yourself. So when Starley did it, the first person said, okay, my secret is that I haven't paid any taxes in 10 years. And everybody went, oh, that's kind of a not very good secret. And then the second person said, my secret is that I once murdered a man. I was in a truck and I pushed the guy out of the truck and he got run over and nobody ever knew it was me, and I got away with it, and I never told anybody. And then Brad, the guy running the course, went, great, next. And then the next person said, God, my secrets are so, are so boring next to that secret. Uh, I suppose I can tell you that I have sex with my cat. And then the murderer put his hand up and said, um, excuse me, can I add something to my secret? Uh, I also have sex with my cat. So, so in that course, people's sort of secrets and honesty became like a kind of, I don't know, it felt like a kind of weapon to beat other people in the group over the head with. So that didn't really work out too well. I mean, so what's the difference, though, between that and the early days of Twitter? Because it seems like you, you think one was good and, and this one wasn't so helpful. Well, gen I get gentleness and kindness. Um, that group felt a little bit too kind of intense and slightly passive-aggressive, I suppose. Like, I remember at one point, one woman there who decided that she didn't like me took my baseball cap off my head, and that felt like a really sort of passive-aggressive thing to do, like a little power thing. Whereas on Twitter, there was like, I don't know, kindness and empathy people were just nice to each other i i think it was because people were overcompensating for the fact that you couldn't see other people's faces um so you were making an effort to be kind of super nice and super sweet because they knew that it would it would kind of replace body language um i think that's what was happening in the early days of twitter and now of course the fact that you can't read other people's body language is another reason to like destroy somebody and sort of pretend that that badly worded tweet is a clue to their inherent evil. 
And I should say, I should caveat everything I'm saying by saying, you know, I'm not advocating like offensive language. You know, I, I, I believe in people being, you know, kind and considerate to each other. But at the same time, you know, I, I think we've created this sort of fearful surveillance society. Honestly, I think the best thing to do is when there's an inappropriate shaming, don't be afraid to speak up and say, you know, that helps so much. I think Monica Lewinsky said that to me, and, and certainly Lindsay and Justine Sacco have said it to me. Like when my book came out and people started being nice to them, it, it helps, you know, it, being brought back into society is what helps, is what kind of heals you. And also in the book, I mean, you talk about attempts to create a, a right to be forgotten or like uh, uh, services that will try to scrub unflattering things about you from the internet. Kind of like, what is the, the, the future of? Uh, re-anonymizing yourself on the internet? Well, you know, in Europe, there's this right to be forgotten ruling, which basically means that you can petition Google to have a transgression scrubbed from the index. Um, of course, what's happened is, you know, newspapers are kind of printing the, <laughs> printing the names of the people who are trying to invoke their right to be forgotten. And everyone's going, oh, yeah, that's the couple who had sex on the train. I forgot all about them. So it's like the right to be reminded. Um, so uh, obviously, as a journalist, you know, my instinct is to be against the right to be forgotten. But since I've written this book, and I've met people who need to be forgotten, because they should never have been pilloried in the first place, I'm more sympathetic to that law now. Uh, unfortunately, the American version is companies like Reputation.com, who tend to be um, expensive. I mean, they, they charge a lot of money because it's an expensive service. So, you know, once again, it's the millionaires and the billionaires who, who, who win because they're the ones who could afford the service. Well, and when you say expensive, I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? In the case of, in the case of Lindsay Stone, because I hooked Lindsay up with them. Um, they agreed to kind of do it pro bono for my and Lindsay's benefit, which was very nice of them. Um, it can probably be cheaper, but I've got a feeling it's never like super cheap. Mm. But you, you, I mean, it sounded at the beginning though, like you are becoming more optimistic that maybe this is, you know, like we had public shamings in real life in the past and we kind of, thanks to people criticizing it, we moved past that and maybe the same thing might happen online. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I, and I think I'm, I'm really hoping that my book is like Benjamin Rush's paper when he says, remember that ignominy is a worse punishment than death. You know, I think that, uh, I think maybe my book will be, you know, possibly, you know, just part of the movement to change. And I'm not talking about regulation because you can only regulate against trolls. And sometimes I think that being a victim of trolls is actually less bad than being a victim of nice, kind people like us. Because when you're a victim of trolls, you, you're obviously a victim. When you've, you know, when we have decided you're a terrible human being, um, there's like nobody there to support you. So I'm not talking about regulation, but I think I'm just talking about kind of, you know, remembering what we really do know about other human beings, which is that we're all a mix of, you know, cleverness and stupidity, mistakes and honesty. You know, that's what human beings are. You know, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, this this book is kind of hoping to remind people or, or sort of make people think about how, how do we want to treat our fellow human beings, given that we all make mistakes, but we're all 
you know, nice and, and honest and kind. And sometimes we say stupid things and sometimes we say wise things. You know, so this book is really asking people to think about how do we want to behave towards other people's mistakes. All right, great. So unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time. There was one thing I'm just sort of curious about is that I mentioned at the beginning, this is a show for fantasy and science fiction fans. And I heard you mention Game of Thrones in one interview. I was just curious, are you a fantasy and science fiction fan at all? Do you watch any uh, movies or read any books along those lines? You know, only Game of Thrones. And I was really reluctant because like all people like me, I thought, what possible pleasure can I get from uh, watching something that involves dragons? Um, And of course, like everybody started watching Game of Thrones, I became like instantly like totally hooked but it hasn't it hasn't got me into uh it hasn't got me into any other things i haven't started watching vikings or the other sort of uh things that come along very quickly as like kind of pale copies of game of thrones but no no i've never watched like lord i've never watched any of the lords of the rings or hobbit films or anything like that and i tend not to watch the marvel movies and uh so no, it's for me. It's, it's just Game of Thrones, and when Kristen Wiig pretends to be Khaleesi on Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, are there any other books uh, you're working on? Any articles or blog posts or anything you want people to check out? No, but actually, this is of relevance to to you because uh, of your fantasy um, uh, slant. Uh, I'm writing a um, a movie like like the work I'm doing right now is I'm writing a movie for Bong Joon-ho, the South Korean director, um, who made Snowpiercer. Oh, I love Snowpiercer, yeah. Yeah, and he made The Host. um, And he's written the first draft of a movie, and he's commissioned me to write the second draft. Uh, So that's what I'm doing at the moment. And it's uh, is it fantasy and science fiction? Uh, I'm not allowed. I'm forbidden from revealing anything about it, except for the fact that it's being directed by by bong so i can't say but <laughs> what i can say is that i'm 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 huge i'm massively enjoying writing it i'm really loving the work okay no well that sounds really cool um and uh, like, like i said i i really love snowpiercer so i am looking forward to whatever uh, that director does next cool well it's gonna be this <laughs> <laughs> i hope as many as slip betwixt cup and the lip but Wait, have, um, you seen, have you seen Snowpiercer? Yeah, I love it. All right, well, so there, yeah, there's another science fiction thing you've, you've seen. Yes, yeah, abs- yeah, no, you're absolutely right, and I did love it. All right, great. So, yes, I guess we should wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with John Ronson about his book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. So, John, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. And that was our interview. So a big thanks again to John Ronson for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Miriam from New Zealand and Voniak and Harpy101 from the U.S. Harpy101 writes, This podcast is the very best for consistent content and genuine presentation. David Barr currently does what so many broadcasters don't do in interviews anymore. He listens. He listens simultaneously with deep understanding of the subject matter and the subjects. David's presentation is the geekiest, which is perfect for the subject matter, but he is also perceptive, insightful, and in subtext, a gentle human being. This podcast manages to be both exciting listening and comfort food for the ears. I wish more broadcasters would take a page from this podcast and reclaim the lost arts of listening and comprehension. So a big thanks again to Harpy101 for that great review. And of course, a very special thank you to everyone who signed up this week to support us on Patreon, including Wallace Simonson, 
Malia Kawaguchi, Robert Mullen, Stephanie Franklin, Eduardo, and Robbie Knight. That brings our total up to $259.50 per episode, which means that we just passed our second Patreon milestone of $250 per episode. So assuming we stay at $250 or above, we'll plan to keep producing episodes for the rest of 2015. So that's another 30 or so new episodes that wouldn't exist without the very generous support of our Patreon and PayPal backers. So a big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.